great. Welcome everybody. Thanks for being here. Hi, I see some folks I haven't seen in a while. Hi, David. Nice to have you all. <clears throat> um, it's a beautiful day. Some people were talking about how lovely it is outside right now. So I hope everyone gets to enjoy the sunshine at some point today, at least in this part of the world. We're going to study Torah together. And the Torah portion is Yitro, which is chapters 18, 19, and 20 of uh, the book of Exodus. And I'm going to say the blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of all, who makes us holy with your commandments and has commanded us to engage with the words of Torah. Amen. Um, so what happens in this portion? Last week we crossed the Red Sea and I apologize that I wasn't able to teach last week. I definitely needed a personal and family day, so I took it. But every, nothing, no crisis or anything, just one of those days. Um, and uh, Last week was the passage of crossing the Red Sea, very dramatic. We chanted it in synagogue, the uh, song sung when crossing the sea. And this week is equally dramatic because it is the receiving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Uh, and it's also customary, and we'll do that again this Shabbat, for the entire congregation to take the Aliyah together for hearing the Ten Commandments, which we'll do on this coming Shabbat. Because in the Jewish tradition, crossing the Red Sea and standing at Mount Sinai are the two occasions, the two peak spiritual, collective spiritual experiences, of, uh, formative experiences for the Jewish people, being liberated and then receiving the covenant and the commandments that we all were there together. And so one of the key themes in both of these times, both of these sections is this idea of us all being together. We're doing it together. It's happening to all of us collectively. And um, I'm actually gonna talk about that some more today. Um, interestingly, this portion doesn't begin with standing at Mount Sinai. It begins in chapter 18. Here, I'll put it up for you so you can see. And there's a lot I want to cover today, but I, it's all connected for me. So I think I'll be able to get to most of it. Here, let me share my screen and show you what I meant. Here's chapter 18. The portion's called Yitro. Yitro in English is Jethro. Jethro is Moses's father-in-law. And it says Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law, um, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel from out of Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, 
after she'd been sent home and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, that is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything that Yudhevav had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the kindness. And this is a word I want us to notice. By Yichad Yitro al kol all the goodness, tov. If you know just a few Hebrew words, you probably know tov, because you are taught, you know, mashlom cha, tov me'od, how are you? Very good, or um, uh, good yom tov, right? So anyway, tov means good. Yitro rejoiced over all the goodness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered them from the Egyptians. Vayomer Yitro, look at this Hebrew, Baruch Hashem, blessed be the Lord, Baruch Hashem, he says, uh, you del who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand, oops, I apologize, um, from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses' father-in-law. So this meal, this is in maybe every single culture in the world, having a sacred festive meal as a way is a form of bonding, right? We eat before God, a sacred meal. And then we go to this next step. So there's Jethro, Moses's father-in-law. Now let's talk about Jethro for just a moment. We meet Jethro back in chapter two of Exodus. Um, we meet Jethro back in chapter two of Exodus when Moses runs away from Pharaoh comes to the well of Jethro's, where Jethro lives, rescues his several of his daughters, and then the daughters go back to their father who says, so he rescued you, why didn't you invite him over? So we could offer him hospitality. And they go get Moses, and then it says that Moses um, uh, and wed Zipporah, one of Jethro's seven daughters. And Jethro was identified as a Kohen, a priest of Midian. And then the, then the next line it says in chapter two, and Moses was tending Jethro's flock when he came upon a burning bush. So Moses moves in with Jethro. And um, we've explored in other years, this idea of Jethro as Moses's mentor. 
as in fact his father, his sub, his because how was who mentored Moses in how to be a good shepherd? He didn't grow up in his father's house. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh may have taught him the um, uh, the ways of statecraft, but when he crossed Pharaoh, Pharaoh was going to kill him and he had to run away. Moses doesn't have a father. And I think that uh, Jethro serves this amazing function as mentor for Moses, teaching him how to be a shepherd, how to be a kind and thoughtful leader. And so when Moses comes back, he actually asks Jethro's permission to go back to Egypt. And Jethro says, go in peace. That's the last time we saw Jethro. And now he's back. And uh, they, they have a wonderful reunion. And then in chapter, in, cha in, in, in verse 13, comes this really interesting section. Next day, Moses sat as magistrate among the people, while the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. But when Moses' father-in-law saw how much Moses had to do for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing to the people? Why do you act alone while all the people stand about you from morning until evening? So first of all, I, I like the way that Jethro just sort of there's a relationship here where Moses, he tells Moses what, what to do. Moses replied to his father-in-law, it is because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes before me and I decide between one person and another and I make known the laws and teachings of God. And then Moses's father-in-law said to him, the thing you are doing is not right. Not good. Not good. Okay. You had the word tov before. Here it's not good. You will surely wear yourself out. And these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. So these, there's a key words here that I'm going to point out to you. Now, listen to me. Ata, shma bekoli. Pay attention to my counsel. Uh, and God be with you. You represent the people before God and you bring the disputes before God and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings and make known to them the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. Now, here's what you have to do. Seek out from among all the people, capable men who fear God, and it's men here, yes. We could say people, human, individuals, trustworthy individuals who spurn ill-gotten gain. Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Have them bring every major dispute to you but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden 
with you. If you do this, and God so commands you to, by the way, you will be able to bear up. And all these people too will go home unwearied. Be shalom. And Moses heeded his father-in-law and did just as he had said. And Moses chose capable people out of all Israel, pointed them heads over the people, thousands, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times, the difficult matters they would bring to Moses and all the minor matters they would decide themselves. And Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way to his own land. Now, the very next chapter, they set up camp at Mount Sinai. Here, I'll stop sharing for a while. I really love that chapter. Um, I love the relationship between Jethro and Moses and the key words there, alone and lo tov, not good. We find in one other place in the Torah. Um, some of you may remember where. If, if you want to, if you want to guess, I'm happy to tell you, of course. In Genesis chapter two. Is it Adam and Eve? Uh, yep. Thank you. Uh, in chapter two of Genesis, it says. Verse 18. Vayomer Adonai lehim. Lo tov. Heyot Adam Livado. It is not good for the human to be alone. And we hear the echo of that phrase precisely in what Jethro says to Moses. And I really love that. In Genesis, it says the rest of the phrases, I will make for him Azer Kenegdo, a um, someone a counterpart who will help him. Now, traditionally it gets uh, translated as a helpmate, um, but that has this connotation of um, servitude. That's not the language in that sentence. Azer kinegdo means someone who will help. Um, hold on, I just have to text this person because it's, uh... there we go. Apologies. Um, and Azer is, a, is someone who can help you. Kinegdo is a beautiful word because it means opposite you, you know. Um, and so um, a fitting counterpart. Uh, so we hear the echo of Genesis chapter two in Jethro's words to Moses. Moses cannot do it alone. It is not good for the people. What you're doing is not good for the people and you'll wear yourself out. And so it's some of the most basic, wonderful leadership advice. It is not good to do it alone. That's one of the, that could be one of the themes of the Torah. Um, and, um, okay. And uh, in this case, 
Moses has to set up a functioning society. They've left Egypt. They've always been under the taskmasters. He's led them out and now he's doing what the only thing he knew how to do. And uh, now they have to set up a functioning society that uh, uh, with, res res with uh, people of um, integrity who can be trusted in leadership positions. And in fact, I spent time studying Rabbi Jonathan Sachs this morning. I'm gonna to turn to some of his words in a little bit. Um, having chiefs of thousands, 50, hundreds, fifties, tens, means that out of a thousand, he did the math, there'd be 131 people in leadership positions. So that means one of eight Israelites winds up in a leadership position. And I thought, oh, that's a lot of people involved. And it's good, right? It's good, it's good. There's, there's on every level from the, from the familial to the neighborhood, to, the, to have a really, to have a society that can actually function with trust. You need trustworthy leaders on every level of organization all the way up to the top. And it's a, it, and, and uh, that's what Moses then implements. Uh, and that's what happens in chapter 18. Oh, David Kagan asks, in the beginning of the chapter, Yitro is with Zipporah and her children. Did Zipporah not go into Mitzrayim with Moses? Uh, yeah, uh, that, there are a lot of inconsistencies in this story, uh, which leads most um, uh, biblical scholars to assume that we have different narrative traditions that have been woven into one, doc, one story. Because back in chapter four, when Moses asks Jethro's permission to go to Egypt, he takes Tzipporah with him. Because it then says in the next verse, in a night encampment along the way, this is in chapter four, um, an, an angel or a, the angel of death attacked Moses and Tzipporah rescued him. And so it's like, so I guess Tzipporah went with him to Egypt. And then we get in this chapter that Tzipporah is with her father-in-law. That's my answer. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And of course, there's a lot written to try to fill in those gaps and harmonize them. But on the face of the story itself, it's just, nope, this, in this version, she goes with him. In this version, she stayed home, I, you know, and then it got, well, I don't know. But it's, a, it's the right question to ask. Another question that'll come up for observant readers is that Moses's father-in-law has many names. Some of you may know this. Uh, here he's Jethro, Yitro. But later in the book of Numbers, his name is Chovav, son of Reuel, and uh, um, Blaze, uh, hold on a second, and I'll, I'll answer that question. Um, Chovav, son of Reuel, elsewhere he's Reuel, then somewhere else he's Yeter. Honestly, Moses, he's, the name associated with Moses' father-in-law keeps changing. Again, scholars speculate is this the J tradition, the P tradition, the you know, who? And the truth is, I don't know. Um, I don't, because um, I, 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 I just don't know, but I'm interested in the names 
because Reuel, which is one of his father-in-law's names, means shepherd of God or friend of God. And Chovav, you know the word Habibi? Uh, if you've ever been in the Middle East, Chovav is like beloved. And Yitro comes from Yeter, Lahater, which means um, abundance. So all these names are great names. Um, and as I say, there are many explanations as to why Moses' father-in-law has different names, but none of them are like the answer. I, I don't know. It's just that's the tradition. So Blaze, where does it say her children and not? Oh, oh, in the text we were reading, I see. Uh, um, 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 and it camped. Joseph brought Moses' sons and wife to him. Uh, and her two sons. I don't know. It says her two sons. Uh, as I said, we'll find a lot of inconsistencies, and uh, that might be just. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So now I want to, then we turn after this really fascinating chapter, we turn to, uh, the, to Mount Sinai. Chapter 19 is the preparation for receiving the um, Ten Commandments. And then chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments themselves. And so I'm going to read you the beginning of chapter 19 by sharing that screen. And then I want to turn to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' teachings, which I found to be really excellent. So Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went back to his own land. Then, and on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. There's that word neged, like a helpmate. Neged is to meet you in front of you. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. Mamlechet Kohanim Goy Kadosh. So in that instruction, first of all, I want to point out that it's conditional. If you accept this Torah, you can become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? Uh, this is not the place God has chosen us 
for a challenge, uh, not because we're superior. <laughs> so in this case, our, our potential is entire to be in a special relationship with the creator is entirely contingent on our ability to fulfill these directives. And um, uh, your mission, if you to choose to accept it, uh, and it, it is a mission impossible, um, but to strive for a good society is the impossible mission that is the core, core of Judaism. And I don't mean that exclusively from other efforts and other traditions. Uh, so this continues for me the theme of um, it's not good to do it alone. Right? First, we need a leadership structure uh, with trustworthy individuals to knit the uh, um, community together. But then we need something more than that. We need everybody to understand that they are part of a covenantal community. Um, and as such, they are not, um, they're not consumers, they're not a receiver of services, they're not a taxpayer, they are in fact, each in their own way, committed members of a sacred relationship, committed partic participants, partners is the best word. And that Hebrew word is brit. Brit means covenant. For, for those for whom that sounds familiar, a bris is a brit milah, the covenant of circumcision. By circumcising the baby boy in the Jewish tradition, you are marking them as belonging to this covenant this sacred relationship that we are, um, uh, we enter in this Torah portion that we're constantly trying to renew. And so I wanna to turn to, um, anyone have any comments or questions at this point? Uh, you're always welcome to put them in the chat. Um, so, now I wanna to turn to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Again, if you're unfamiliar, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory just passed away a few months ago, um, sadly, and uh, really a leading light of um, Torah study and ethics and, and morality in the Jewish world and beyond. Uh, um, and um, I always recommend uh, Barbara Segula, treasured possession, a treasure. Mm -hmm. I think it doesn't, I don't know why they chose possession, Barb. It doesn't have to be possession, but a skula is a treasure, um, a treasured object, a treasured thing. Uh, so I'm always gonna recommend his website for people who wanna see what he has to say on any given week, Rabbi Sachs, uh, is it .com or .org, Rabbi Ellen, do you remember? Okay, so let me share a document where I cut and pasted a couple of his recent, um, here we go. Beautiful, okay. 
Now, in this teaching, Rabbi Sachs wants to, and I think successfully makes a distinction between a social contract and a covenant. And here's his distinction. And I think it's really worthwhile. Uh, first, he introduces it as any good speaker does by, by sharing a couple of anecdotes which in the interest of time, I won't reach you, but he was addressing some large bodies, both the uh, Anglican communion, debating gay marriage, and the um, American uh, Enterprise Institute uh, uh, after the election of Trump uh, at a different con conference. And uh, he said, the reason these two events are connected in my mind is that on both occasions, I spoke about the same concept, the one that is central to this week's Parsha and to biblical Judaism as a whole, namely Brit, covenant. This idea of covenant in the 17th century especially was a key concept in the emerging free societies of the West, especially in Calvinist and Puritanical circles. And then, he goes on to grossly simplify complex process, but he's fabulous, fascinating to listen to. So think of the Puritans who first came to New England for all their craziness. They understood their relationship to one another as a covenantal relationship. And he's gonna explain. Over time, however, and under the influence of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the word covenant was gradually supplanted by the phrase social contract. Clearly there is something similar between the two, but they are not the same thing at all. In fact, they operate on different logics and they create different relationships and institutions. In a contract, two or more people come together, um, each pursuing their self-interest to make a mutually advantageous exchange. In a covenant, two or more people, each respecting the dignity and integrity of the other, come together in a bond of loyalty and trust to do together what neither can achieve alone. It isn't an exchange, it's a moral commitment. It is more like a marriage than a commercial transaction. And in fact, by the way, as you may know, the, the um, the Hebrew word for marriage is, is a brit, kitushin, is a covenant, a holy covenant of marriage. Contracts are about interests. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit, covenants transform. Contracts are about me and you. Covenants are about us. I found that very eloquent. Um, he then goes on to describe that in the book of Samuel, the children of Israel demand a king and Samuel warns them and says, you know what a king is gonna do to you? He's gonna draft your sons. He's gonna, gonna take your daughters into his harem. He's gonna do all that stuff. But they say, we want a king so we can be like a, a nation among the other nations. And so uh, Rabbi Sachs calls that a contract, a contract uh, where people are willing to give up certain of their rights, transferring them to a central power, a king or a government who undertakes in return 
to ensure the defense of the realm externally and the rule of law within. So he says the book of Samuel contains the first recorded instance of a social contract. I have no idea if it's the first, but you know, I wouldn't say it that way, but it certainly is an early instance of a social contract. But now I'm gonna read him in full here. I just think this is really compelling. However, this was the second founding moment of Israel as a nation, not the first. The first took place in our Parsha on Mount Sinai, several centuries earlier, when the people made with God, not a contract, but a covenant. What happened in the days of Samuel was the birth of Israel as a kingdom. What happened in the days of Moses, long before they had even entered the land, was the birth of Israel as a nation under the sovereignty of God. The two central institutions of modern Western liberal democracies are both contractual. There are commercial contracts that create the market and there is a social contract that creates the state. The market is about the creation and distribution of wealth. The state is about the creation and distribution of power. But a covenant is about neither wealth nor power, but rather about the bonds of belonging and collective responsibility. As I put it in The Politics of Hope, a social contract creates a state. A social covenant creates a society. A society is the totality of relationships that do not depend on exchanges of wealth and power, namely marriages, families, congregations, communities, charities, and voluntary associations. The market and the state are arenas of competition Society is an arena of cooperation, and we need both. Here, let me stop sharing for just a bit. Um, Roni says, from reading Rousseau, his social contract was exactly about forming a society and not acting as an individual with self-interest. It was the beginning of the definition of citizenry which has strong moral and ethical implications and is the basis of a formation of society that works to benefit all. The whole is the sum of its parts. Thank you, Roni. I, I tend to agree with you. And I suspect that Rabbi Sachs, who was incredibly well-read, was wanted to make his um, uh, dialectic point here. And I bet he would have an interesting conversation with you about that. So I, I, happen, I agree with you. And so not to parse the terms, but the idea of the exchange of a contract, you give me this service, I give you this money, versus the mutuality of a covenant. We are all in this together for the purpose of the greatest good, is what he's trying to talk about. And um, I think one of the things I've witnessed over the last, uh, my goodness, almost my entire adult life, is the devolution of here in the United States of America and in many, you know, as, as, as uh, a global capitalism has, you know, taken over um, uh, of um, us no longer being called citizens, but being called consumers. It's an astonishing change of language, right? And for me, I've thought about this for years. It, it absolutely reflects 
the shift in focus from a covenantal society to a contractual one, as it were, to use these terms. Um, and, you know, despite all the people who weren't actually included in the sacred covenant of being an American that I grew up to um, internalize, what I, the, the idea of our society that I was excited and proud to be a participant in, you know, I was a full member of the covenantal idea of America, right? Um, a full participant. Um, I bought in just as I have and continue to buy in to the idea of the covenant the Jewish people have with God to become a kingdom of priests and a holy people uh, by manifesting laws of justice, kindness, and fairness in our society, right? That's the covenantal understanding. And certainly in marriage, uh, as a covenant, when it's working, it's not, um, how, how shall I say it? You're not giving on condition that you receive. You're giving because you've both agreed that the covenant of love you've entered is what, this is what you do. And covenantal relationships thrive when they're not, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, well, I'm using the word contractual, but you know what? Well, transactional, thank you, Charlotte. That's exactly what I was thinking. Quid pro quo, the word I was thinking was transactional. When they're not transactional, when you give because that's the commitment you made, and it's not a commitment to yourself. It's a commitment to whatever entity you feel covenantally connected to. Right. So um, I definitely want us to, re to reflect on and, and also kind of bring front and center again, this idea, this magnificent idea of a that the Jewish people are entering into a covenantal relationship, not only with each other, but with the creator of the universe. And think about what that implies about where our commitments and our behaviors lay, lie, if we're going to actually embody that covenant, not what have you done lately for me, God, right? Um, it's not contingent on whether life's going well or not well. And I just, um, some of you may be familiar with the Bruderhof. The Bruderhof are a radical Christian pacific, pacifist um, sect with a small s. There's nothing sectarian about them. They're extraordinary. Who, through accidents of history, wound up with their main communities right here in our area in the Hudson Valley. And so I've had a lot of interaction with the Bruderhof over the years. They live as a kibbutz. If you commit to being part of their fellowship, you, you, you completely commit. It is not for everybody, the Bruderhof communities, but the people who know they want to go all the way with this commitment to belonging to a community that in their case is based on the Sermon on the Mount 
and on manifesting one for all and all for one, and on doing it by giving up your willfulness in favor of whatever's best for the covenantal community. And they put out a book in honor of their 100th <clears throat> anniversary, because they were formed in 1920 in Germany by a pacifist uh, Christian pastor. And uh, um, so this is a big coffee table book and something compelled me to buy it. And I've been reading it the last few nights and it's filled with the stories of, oh, a hundred different individuals as sort of profiling them and why they joined the Bruderhof and what it means to them. And it, it's truly a manifestation of this idea of a covenantal community. Um, it's so admirable. You don't have to agree with all of their conservative with a small c social mores that hold them together, but their vision is a vision of love. And of the hard, they have one after another, they say, you know, this is no picnic, <laughs> but this is where I wanna be with the other people who have committed themselves in this completely wholehearted way to do it together. Um, and this is what the Jewish people are being asked to do uh, here at Mount Sinai, uh, to make this commitment to one another, to lo love God, to not worship idols, to be good to their word, to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not uh, bear false witness, to not steal, to, it's just, this is what they say, okay, barely. If you read on, it says, when the people heard what was actually demanded of them, um, uh, they trembled and fell back because to truly manifest, think about marriage, think about any loving relationship where you know you're in it for the long haul. It's like, it is work every day. And yet there's a sense that it's not good for the human to be alone. And I don't mean that just in terms of monogamy by any stretch of the imagination. That's not what I'm talking about because that not good extends to social connection too. Um, Ruth Hirsch says to everyone, in my experience, the Bruderhof lives their values and truly help folks not part of their committed community. They help people in a variety of ways. I am a big fan of the Bruderhof. They are, they are like the opposite of a cult. It's somehow they're pulling it off, creating this incredibly cohesive community without putting up walls around, their, uh, around themselves in order to maintain and maintain this themselves. I wish them continued success. The Jewish Sermon on the Mount? Oh, well, I studied the Sermon on the Mount with my friend, uh, Father Matthew, Reverend Matthew. It's a fascinating thing to study it and see, it's, see how Jesus is taking Jewish values and articulating them in an incredibly compelling way. Oh yes, they're still in Rosendale, they're in Rifton. Around here, they have a community in Rifton, in Ulster Park and up in uh, Tannersville and Platteclough. But they have many other communities. They've, they're growing, they're, they number in the thousands now. Um, 
And Barb says, reminds me of the song Brotherhood of Man. Oh, from How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Yeah, listen to that song. That's got an edge, that one. Uh, this is a difficult time for you, Rabbi, to be saying, don't be alone. Please modulate this. Okay, you're not alone right now, Roni. None of us are alone right now. We are together despite our physical isolation, engaging in substantive, meaningful. That's what I'm talking about. Um, I was not talking about the fact that some of us are physically isolated or that some of us are single or any of that. That's not what I meant at all. Um, and uh, I mentioned the Mount of Sinai. Yes, Enid. Uh, oh, that was a bad joke. It was so bad I didn't get it, Enid. <laughs> I'll need an explanation. <laughs> um, okay, so um, we're, once again, these talks always happen on mountains. They do, don't they? Sermon on the Mount and Mount of Sinai. I went to the Mount of Beatitudes, north of Sea of Galilee. Uh, what a beautiful spot. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is said to have taken place. It's not much of a mountain, but it's gorgeous. But then in Israel, there aren't very many real mountains. So there are more. Anyhow. Um, okay, I wanna go back to um, Rabbi Sachs for a moment. I encourage you to go to his website and read all about this stuff. But he says, so if you find yourself in a situation of conflict that threatens to break something apart, whether a marriage, a family, a business, a community, a political party, or an organization, framing a covenant will help keep people together without any side claiming victory or defeat. All it needs is recognition that there are certain things that we can do together that none of us can do alone. Covenant lifts our horizon from self-interest to the common good. There is nothing wrong with self-interest. It drives economics and politics, the market and the state. But there are certain things that cannot be achieved on the basis of self-interest alone. Among them, trust, friendship, loyalty, and love. Covenant really is a life and world-changing idea. And that's how he ends that particular column. And then Bonnie um, Meadow, who's here today, sent me this this morning. And I cut and pasted from this website called thepeoplesinauguration.org. Here's their mission statement. America is in transition. Sound government is necessary but it's not enough to create a society where we are all free. This work belongs to us, the people. And then they have an oath. I, Jonathan Kligler, do solemnly vow, it's based on the presidential oath, right? Well, that I will faithfully execute my role in healing, reimagining, and rebuilding our country, and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend dignity, 
justice and joy for myself and for all around me, and that I will do so with love. And I read that this morning, I thought, that's just what I was thinking about, about what's happening at Mount Sinai here. We in America certainly need um, a renewal of our vows as Americans that go beyond exchange and transaction, which has been the driving factor of life, as I say, my entire adult life. This careening towards, as I'll repeat, being consumers instead of being citizens. And I thought that, again, as I, you know, I always look at the Torah portion as I've explained to you um, and say, how, what is this reflecting to me about my life today? And again, that idea of covenant came in stronger than uh, almost anything I could think about while I was reading. Um, uh, I'm just going to, uh, Ah, that's about Jethro saying, it's not good to be alone is not good. Okay, let me stop sharing the screen. I wanna go back to that word good for another moment because Jethro makes one more appearance in the Torah. He apparently, and again, this is different, different stories sort of woven together. The children of Israel remain at Mount Sinai for over a year. So in the version in Numbers, Jethro, but he's not called Jethro here, he has one of his different names, Chovav, uh, is still with them and they're about to set out from Mount Sinai after having received the covenant. And it's a year later and it's the book of Numbers chapter 10. And Moses said to Chobab, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the eternal one has said, I will give it to you. Come with us, the Hetavnulach, and we will be good to you. For the eternal, our God, has promised to be good to all of us. The word tov appears again and again. And then it says, but his father-in-law replied, I will not go, but will return to my land. And Moses says, please do not leave us. Inasmuch as you know where we should camp. And you can be our guide. And if you come with us, we will extend to you the good, hatov, that God has extended to us. Um, but he goes back. That's the last we hear of Jethro. But I like that the word tov is repeated over and over in reference to him. So somehow Jethro is the emissary of the good for Moses and the people of Israel. He brings them the message of freedom, of what true freedom is to those who have only known enslavement. 
he's like, he, he, it's beautiful when you think about it. First, Moses has to go to him to learn what it means to be a free human being. And being a free human being in Jewish terms and biblical terms is not the twisted version we have of the one who's accountable to no one. Being a free human being is the one who freely offers their accountability to the people they love, right? But in, this, in a society that's been uh, based on um, enforced labor, oppression, and terror, they don't know what that is. They don't know what that goodness is. And Jethro is the one who then comes to them after they've left Egypt to describe to Moses once again, no, 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 that's not good. Here's the good. Here's the good. Your freedom is so that you can freely, lovingly, willingly give up some of your own willfulness in order to participate in a community where the good of all is on everyone's minds. Deborah said, it is so important that we renew the vow that all of us are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the covenantal essence of the United States. That's why, it, that's why again, the idea of America has such an impact on the world because it's expressed in this way. And I wanna say that, again, to remind us that the idea of Judaism is also that we should become all of us a nation of priests not just uh, accountable, to, not just leaders accountable, but all of us accountable to the goodness, the good of the community. And that by taking on the 10 commandments, we all hear them because we are all responsible for them. Because if some of us, only some of us take responsibility for them, then the holy society cannot emerge. So here's to both being faithful to that Jewish covenant and faithful to the covenant and the idea of the United States, which uh, we needed more than ever right now. And we'll keep practicing, which is all we can do. So I think it's time to stop. Let me stop.